TBS Friday and streaming on Paramount Plus. Campfire's coming to you! Don't miss TV's hottest show, Fire Country. This is a high complexity rescue with a low chance of success. Follow the rules, and you shave another day off your sentence. Critics call it explosive and pure entertainment. I'm a felon. I'm not fit to be anything else. You're not an inmate, you're a firefighter. Bring it on. Fire Country. New episode Friday, 9, 8 central on CBS and now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Welcome to Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, and we're Hanging outside the Burj Khalifa this week, aren't we, Charles? Yes, we are. Gosh, this is uh, we're going way back to March 2019. Another one of our absolute favorite interviews. So excited to bring this one back. Um, yeah, and I know you are very excited, Drew. I mean, this oh, man, this this is the origin of the Light the Fuse title comes from the day you know you and I saw Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol in IMAX. At the the Lincoln Square AMC IMAX, there the huge screen, and afterwards we went and saw uh, Brad Bird Q and A at the Lincoln Center, where he showed clips from his movies and talked, and we just fell in love, and it was wonderful. It was, and uh, yeah, we've got Brad Bird on the show, and we went and talked to Brad Bird, and he was so fun, and he was he we kept feeling like we were taking up too much of his time, and he kept just wanting to tell us more. This is as you've said before, and I love that you say this. This is like he didn't record an audio commentary for for Ghost Protocol. This is kind of like his audio commentary for the movie. Oh, absolutely, and I want to tell people we were at his house, uh, and we were sitting on a couch in a little kind of sunroom. And there was a TV across from us with a cable box. So Charles and myself were looking at the time and (laughs) recognizing how much of his day we were taking up. And we tried to get out. You know, we tried to get out early. But he had so many stories to tell us. Yeah. And he was so gracious. And, you know, there we were in a room that on the wall was Joe Johnson's first drawing of the Iron Giant. Yes. On the wall. Joe Johnston, who who obviously you know is a legendary director and 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 visual effects artist, going to, back to the Star Wars movies. Yeah, um, didn't he design Boba Fett as well? He designed Boba Fett. He's uh, yeah, he's got an exciting new project coming out that we can't talk about. But I told Joe that that was where it was. You know that we had done this interview, and he and he said, ah. Oh, that's where that is. So Joe was also <laughs> wondering where that sketch was. Now he knows that it's on Brad's Amazing. wall. Um, yeah, so this this is one of our best episodes ever. I think. What do you What do you think? Yes, absolutely. This is like this is by easily uh, top five, like one of the best episodes, interviews. I mean, it was so lovely to talk to Brad Bird. It's just so awesome to have this episode back now for everyone to listen to. And I wanted to say also, yeah, we did have uh, some technical difficulties in this ep- in this interview. Uh, you know, I should everything should be good, but you 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 know there was a lawnmower next to where we were recording, and there were sounds in the background at certain points, and uh, so I apologize for that. And also, we had an issue with the recording equipment at one point. 
So, you know, the recording stopped in the middle of Bird telling us a story, but we realized it right as it happened. So so then we, we were able to start recording again. He was able to pick back up the story. So you'll hear a little break in the, the recording for a second, but it just it, he just picks right back up from from where he was. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was uh, all worth it, of course. I mean, this is just such a, an awesome chat. Yeah, we really thank Brad for his time and uh, hopefully we'll talk to him again. Hopefully Brad will make another movie, too. That is uh, something that we really want need. to have happen. Yes, we, we need, need that. We need it. We need our souls need it. Yeah. Uh, and if you want to revisit Ghost Protocol after listening to this episode, Charles, you can go to Paramount Plus where the first six movies are streaming right now. I also want to encourage people to pick up Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning either from their favorite digital retailer or on physical media, DVD, Blu-ray, 4K, Ultra HD disc. Go grab it. It's very much worth it. And let's get into it, Charles. You ready? I am ready. Let's do it. All right. All right. Welcome back to Light the Fuse. And we are so thrilled to have our very special guest, uh, two-time Oscar winner, current Oscar nominee, perhaps three-time Oscar winner by the time this comes out. Oh, I wouldn't count on it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are joined by uh, Mr. Brad Bird. Brad, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Um, we love Ghost Protocol. Obviously, the name of the show is Light the Fuse. There you go. So we, we saw we uh, started that. You started yeah. that. We we've uh, not like they've ever done it again. <laughs> <laughs> the moment we became obsessed with this franchise was that moment. I think. Oh yeah. We saw it in IMAX at uh, the Lincoln Square AMC. Oh in, cool. In New yeah, York, we, we saw we, it the same day you did your talk at uh, Lincoln Center. Yeah, we went. Oh. To, we went to that talk. I actually went with him for that. Yeah. So <laughs> could you talk about that opening sequence? Uh. Well. Yeah. I mean. Uh, one of the cool things about working on that is I was, it kind of ties into how I got involved in it. Um, after Incredibles, Tom Cruise asked to talk with me and, and invited me over to his place. And I just went over there and we just talked about movies for like uh, two or three hours. And it's, his knowledge was extensive. I mean, it was, a lot of times you talk to people and their knowledge of film goes back maybe 10 or 15 years. And, you know, t we were talking about stuff from the silent era and, and he could talk about Harold Lloyd and know what he was talking about. And I love that. And, and uh, he just said that he really liked um, Incredibles and, and Iron Giant and um, that if I ever wanted to do a live action film, you know, he wanted to work with me. And I said, absolutely. I'd love to make one with you. You know, I mean, he has an amazing body of work that uh, I think people kind of forget how many really good films he's been in, you know, and been really good in. <clears throat> and so fast forward, I'm uh, finished with Ratatouille. I'm trying to get this project called 1906 off the ground and just the project is this massive and complicated thing. And I look up and I, I haven't cracked it yet. And two years have gone by and I'm starting to go, I can't have on my gravestone. He worked on 1906. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, so I thought I gotta, I gotta do a movie. I want to do a live action movie. I, I've, you know, been wanting to do one for a long time and I've got to just make it happen. So I, looked around and at what, you know, I'd been offered things over the years and, and couldn't do them because I was involved in the animated films. 
And so I kind of looked around at what was available and JJ had uh, been talking to me too previous to that and uh, talked about certain films that I wasn't able to do. And um, I went down to Bad Robot with Michael Giacchino, who did Lost with JJ and and, uh, Alias, you know, and uh, JJ ran into us there and uh, I just, he said, what are you, what, what are you doing now? And I said, well, I'm actually kind of looking for stuff. And that night when I came back from LA, I got this little text from JJ that just said mission question mark. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's cool. And the reason I thought it was cool was that of all the franchises, which is kind of what, if you like to work on a big scale, the, the films that are gassed up and ready to go are franchise films. Those are the ones the studio has confidence in. They're, they're not going to give you some oddball project that's that's really, you, you know, right. different from everything they've done. They're going to do the ones that they have confidence in. So of of all the franchises that that I was looking at, that was the one that was most intriguing to me because at that point anyway, it was the only franchise that adapted to different director's styles. They weren't trying to impose a house style on a director. The Brian De Palma one was very different from the John Woo one, which would never be mistaken as the JJ one, which would is different from mine. And the fact that they could, that they wanted each director to have a different style you know, given that, you know, it's going to be a spy movie that's going to have Tom Cruise and a, and a team of IMF agents. But other than that, you could kind of make your movie. You know what I mean? And I like that. I like that that it embraced the different styles of the filmmakers, whereas other franchises didn't. They told you this is our stunt team and this is our da da da. And you just are kind of in there to direct traffic, you know. Right. Um, so. It, it happened sort of that way. And one of the things that was cool is they said, have you, do you have anything that you really want to see in a spy movie? And I said, oh, yeah, I have a bunch of things, you know. And they said, now's your opportunity, basically. And of the six or seven things that I suggested, uh, I got to do all but one of them. And, and one of the things that I wanted to do was pay tribute to the the TV series titles. And one of the thing that was cool about the titles, besides the fact that the fuse is burning all the time is that they showed you bits of the episode you were about to see, but because they were scrambled out of order, you, even though uh, you're seeing stuff from the episode that you haven't seen yet, it's not a spoiler because it's out of context and it just becomes intriguing. You're, you're just like, Oh, this is in there. That's in there. I want to see this. So I thought, is there a way to do that that's updated? And and uh, I thought of following the fuse and having the fuse dimensionally take you through different scenes. And originally it was going to be more than what we wound up with. When we first started shooting, all of that stuff was going to be in IMAX. And what the plan was is once you finish shooting a scene on a set, you have everybody do part of that scene, but with a completely different camera move that rushes through that set. And, and it was all going to be shot in IMAX. And we only ended up shooting like three of them because 
The IMAX cameras are huge and you have to get a running start with them in order to, to move them quickly through a space. And it just became too hard. Now, if I was smart, I would have shot it in this division or something that's that's not cumbersome. And I would have been more casual and just done it on every set and then later figured out how to wind the fuse through there. But we shot like three or four of them in IMAX. And then it became more about uh, getting the concept to the title house because we it, the film was the schedule was too crazy to to effectively do that for the, for everything. But the idea was good. And, and so when we got to the end of it, I just said to the title guys that um, the idea is that we, the fuse is going to lead us through every scene in the film. And instead of being flat, it's going to, we're going to follow the fuse as it snakes through the scenes of the movie. And uh, so they took that idea and ran with it. And uh, it, it was fun. All of the previous mission impossibles there's there's a thing that kicks in that that you can't show more than one or two titles, which is usually the company name and the title of the film, um, without triggering uh, a union requirement to show all the major uh, department leads. And so they said, I said, well, why hasn't hasn't it been done before? This is like one of the greatest theme songs in the history of movies or television. Period. <laughs> Uh, and they said, well, we didn't want to trigger. We didn't want to go through a whole title sequence. And I thought, why the hell not? You know, <laughs> I mean, you've got this amazing theme song yeah. and let it roll. You know, so Giacchino was excited about that because he loves the theme song. And we just said, yeah, let's trigger everybody's titles and do a big title sequence. And then it became, well, we're going to do that. Can we set it up? You know, can we set it up and have them packing, you know, explosives in the opening? And then that's the thing that they're lighting the fuse for. And you end you end the sequence with an explosion. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's an amazing title sequence. Uh, What did you want to ask about Kyle Cooper? Well, so, yeah. So you brought did you bring back Kyle Cooper from the first movie? He did, did the title sequence for the first movie. I didn't know that. Oh, uh, really? No, I just we just picked him because uh, he was great. Maybe somebody suggested him knowing that. Yeah. But I just looked. We looked at three or four places, and they had the coolest reel. So we just said, these guys. Yeah, they did a great job on it. Yeah. It seems like there was a concerted effort sort of to honor the first movie in some way. At least Paul Hirsch, the editor, came back. Well, yes, yes. <laughs> I don't know if that wasn't. Yeah, in, no. I mean, I knew or... I knew that Paul did it, and I thought he did a great job on it. But I was also honoring the editing of Star Wars oh. and Empire Strikes <laughs> Back, right. and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and and you know, uh, Ray, and I mean, he has a an unbelievable um, you know resume. Yeah, yeah. So he's a. An editor that I, whose work I'd always admired and his range I admired, the fact that he could do a comedy and then a suspense film and then a great the sci-fi fantasies of Star Wars. And uh, um, yeah, he was a delight to work with. But there did seem to be more callbacks, at least at some point. I mean, we've seen a script where Vanessa Redgrave's character is actually in the movie. Um, and I'm assuming that's why you brought the kind of the henchman guy back. And we thought we were going to get her, so we were setting that up. Yeah, well, I was going to say, how close did that... Huh? Well, uh, <laughs> our friends at Paramount did not want to pay Vanessa Redgrave. Okay. Uh, what Vanessa Redgrave 
rightly deserves. Right. And uh, so after setting, teeing up Vanessa Redgrave, we couldn't get Vanessa Redgrave. <laughs> and I was bummed and Tom was bummed. And I felt like in the first Mission Impossible movie, the scenes between Vanessa Redgrave's character and Tom's character were some of the best scenes in the movie. And they had this weird... Uh, flirty byplay yeah. that was um, flirty and sexy without you believing that they're necessarily going to wind up in bed. Yeah. Like they're having, they're, they're uh, attractive to each other. Yes. And, and, but in a way that's really sophisticated. And uh, I think she's a magnificent actress. And I was like uh, licking my chops to be able to work with her just because uh, I admire her work so much. And I was really bummed when they didn't, do it. Um, yet I think our solution that we came up with was worked all right. Yeah, the fog. The fog. Yeah. Um, Which was a Chris McQuarrie name. <laughs> well, yeah. I was going to ask you sort of what what was your relationship with... Uh, I'm sorry for all the uh, mowing going on. Because <laughs> it seems like the script went through a pretty radical change. I mean, yeah. the script that you signed on to was not the movie you made, necessarily. No. Um, we've heard talks <laughs> about, like, a big uh, <laughs> a snow story. fight and the, the, a oh, secondary man. team taking over towards the end and all well, this stuff. Well, uh, I don't know about the secondary dairy team part. I don't. Um, I just know that there was a, a giant sequence that opened the movie that, that Tom was not in. And uh, it was going to have the Josh Holloway character and... Uh, it was a big sequence. It was on the snow and it had snowmobiles and this really crazy notion of um, somebody is trying to basically kill themselves so that they don't give up the information. So they poison themselves. And one of the characters like reaches into the heart and keeps the heart going to get the information out of him and saying, I can keep you as alive as long as uh, it takes to get the information and I'm Holy not going to let you die. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. it was intense. <laughs> and I, I kind of liked it. Yeah. You know, I thought this is really crazy and it could be very intense and it was on the ice and the ice was going to crack and all this stuff. And uh, I also thought it was ballsy because the audience would go in expecting Tom right away. And, it's suddenly this other bunch of people that you don't even know and are not, don't have any history with. And then that sequence goes south. I mean, and, and you then show Tom, I thought it was a, actually a good way to set up Ethan Hunt, you know, uh, is to not have him right. just because that's what everybody expects now. <laughs> so we wound up, with a different sequence that had to do with Tom's team getting him out, just like they do in the finished version, except it was all of them basically going into the area where you talk to prisoners and then blowing that up and actually getting, you know, blowing something up in order for Tom to escape. And I had a gag that I suggested that Benji was going to come in there. And when he talked, it would sound strange. And he actually had an artificial tongue that was made out of plastic explosives. And so he pulled it out of his mouth and smashed it up against the, the plastic or the bulletproof glass or whatever. 
and it blew a hole in it and they got him out. So we, that's what we were prepared to go there and shoot. And we go there to shoot and I'm sitting here trying to stage this. Paramount had delayed us scouting anything until Tom's deal was made. And that pinched our time. So we had no time to scout and we're there. And I'm trying desperately to, to figure out how we've got this prison that that's a defunct prison um, outside of Prague, about an hour outside of Prague, but it's, it's looks cool. I mean, it looks decrepit and weird and, and it was an active prison like 20 years ago. So I'm there, I'm, I'm trying to set up, where's this stuff going to happen? We find a room and we say, okay, here's where the da 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 is. Okay. Where's, where's, uh, the prisoner, where's the guard, and, and nothing worked. In other words, nothing worked in a way, nothing physically worked in a way that would allow us to shoot what was in the script. And then we kept having to invent stuff. Well, how about if we put another guard there? And then that became problematic for the next shot. Well, if the other dog, guard is here, then he can see blah, 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 blah. And it's obvious that, and pretty soon there were so many fixes on fixes to make this work that I just said, forget it. We're not doing this. And then, and then on the spot, I mean, uh, not that moment, but over the next night or so, we had the idea of, um, controlling the doors and, uh, Jim Bissell had to kind of quickly come up with a device that, that looked convincing and bulky enough to fit in that prison um, that controlled the doors. And once I had that, I, I wrote in some of this stuff with the Bogdan character and, and, uh, Tom had this idea of, uh, a character that thought that Tom's character was, didn't know that he was English. And, and he <laughs> called him Sergey, you know, and, and that was in Tom's mind. And so we integrated that in, into it. And, Basically, that sequence was kind of improvised out there. There were two guys that we had tested or the uh, uh, Prague casting agent had just shown me a variety of actors that were in the area that were might work for a part in the film. And I remembered two of them, but I just remembered them like I didn't remember their names. I just said there's a guy who who kind of hangs in the doorway. So find that guy. And then there's another guy who, uh, when she asks him what his name is, he said, my name is Mirai, da-da-da-da. I am the greatest actor in, in all of Prague or something like that. <laughs> and then he goes, and then he waits a beat and goes, no, 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 that's not true. <laughs> and, and I just remembered that. And, and I remembered his face and the fact that he had a weird sort of face that could go look menacing at first glance and then look like, Oh, he's, he's a, he's a cupcake. You know, I mean, he's, he's a friendly guy, like a good, uh, uh, a pet or something, you know, he, <laughs> he's like a favorite, you know what I mean? Yeah. He's funny and, and he's gregarious and, and it could go either way, you know? And so, uh, I said, find this guy who says he's the greatest actor, whatever it is. And I mean, we're, we're moving. So they dig these guys up and I have one guy be the guy, the first guy who wakes up, right. Who wakes up and finds his door open. The kind of guy that yeah. Yeah, sneaks out. And he was the first guy. And then the other guy played Bogdan. And so the guy who played Bogdan, Mirai, he thought that, you know, he came in for another uh, audition 
uh, in a sea of auditions three months before and thought, oh, that didn't pay off. And suddenly, you know, somebody calls him on the phone and uh, like two days later, he's in this giant pl- prison sequence, with Tom Cruise. And, and, you know, he was just kind of going, what the hell? And then, <laughs> and then, but he was great, right? You know, I loved uh, his performance in the film. And he was so good that, that when Chris McQuarrie came on to straighten out some stuff in the script, he brought him back later in the film. And so he ended up being a fairly significant part, you know, and it was out of nowhere. When we start, when we came to Prague to start filming the sequence, none of that sequence was in there. That was, uh, you know, I had the idea for the doors and all that stuff. Yeah. It seems like the guy getting stuck in the door is a very Bradbird gag. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> I didn't think of that, but I guess so. <laughs> Well, there was something funny about it. And I also, I like it. And and this is maybe an old classical movie thing, but I like it when characters are introduced in a way that's distinctive. And I thought it would be cool to, to hide Tom's face for a little while, even though everyone knows it's Tom and everyone knows what Tom looks like. And he's not got, you know, three missing teeth. There's no big surprise. And when he turns around, (laughs) but I thought, if we withhold his face and uh, for the close-up part at a pivotal moment, which, which is where he decides to go back and get this guy, mm-hmm. yeah, I thought that gives his character an introduction. Yeah, you oh, know? that's such a great entrance. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, lo- I love that he's also he's not just that he's bouncing the rock off the wall <laughs> back to himself. He's bouncing it off two walls and then back to himself. Right, right, <laughs> <It's>, right. <laughs> and of so course, great. Tom loved that right away when I pitched that idea. I yeah. said, "Hey, what about if you were throwing?" You know, and it took him like. Two seconds, he, he just points at me and goes, Cooler King. And I go, yeah, yeah, the Cooler King, <laughs> right? You know, Steve McQueen from yeah. Escape. So, uh, uh, but we like that he was doing it with a, 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 a rock that has been rounded because he's been doing it so much. Yeah. yeah. You know? Was that an ILM rock? Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, you but obviously- but I, I, I had it, the, an idea I had is that when he hears the music, he puts the rock back into place yeah. in, the, in the wall. You know, yeah. he slides yeah. it into Let's place. Let's a little spot for it. Yeah. yeah. That's where he keeps yeah. his rock. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we'll be back with more from Brad Bird after the break. CBS Friday and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Fire's coming to you! Don't miss TV's hottest show, Fire Country. This is a high-complexity rescue with a low chance of success. Follow the rules. Can you shave another day off your sentence? Critics call it explosive and pure entertainment. I'm a fella. I'm not fit to be anything else. You're not an inmate. You're a firefighter. Bring it on. Fire Country. New episode Friday, 9, 8 central on CBS and now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Rise and shine, football fans. Start your day the right way with Morning Footy, a podcast that covers every aspect of the global game, headlines, match previews, analysis, interviews, culture, fashion, and plenty of banter. Join as we track the thrills and spills of Europe's biggest title races, the business end of the Champions League season, a summer packed with international competitions, MLS, NWSL, and much more. Subscribe to Morning Footy. Thank you. 
Uh, you obviously love 60s <laughs> spy stuff, as evidenced in Incredibles. But yeah, yeah. Charles loves the original show, too. So we were curious... What you, don't, you don't love the original show, I guess. I, it's, well, I, I, <laughs> I like the original show, but it's not it's not my favorite. But what was your relationship with the original oh, show? Oh, I saw it when it was on TV. When okay, I was a it wasn't kid. like a huge influence or anything. Uh, I really liked it when it was on. Okay. Um, I, I liked the earlier Martin Balsam sort of episodes more than later. Okay. But, yeah. Like um, Dan Briggs, the first season is awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I liked it, but... It's kind of better when you're doing something like this, then it's better to just remember what you liked about it than it is to go back and look at episodes. <laughs> right. Because if I if I, I started to go back and look at episodes and I thought, well, this is a little more TV-ish and cheesy than I remember. Yeah. And, you know, not to say that there weren't great episodes, but I didn't hunt for them. Yeah. I very quickly went, no, I'm going to go on what I remember them being like when I was a kid. And, and that's what's going to flavor the film because um, then it's about, you know how when you're a kid and you're at grade school and the halls look enormous and, and you go, oh, yeah, man, our school was huge. And then you go back like 10 years later and it seems tiny. Yeah. And it's like, what? I was living in a hobbit school, you know? What was going on? <laughs> that's, that's your memory is flavor stuff with all this um, – uh, great. And sometimes things hold up beautifully. You know, Wizard of Oz is still a great film. Um, uh, even though I've seen it a billion times, it still charms me, you know. But I think that if you're going for uh, the feeling of something, it's better to just rely on the impression that it made rather than the specifics of it. Okay. Charles, want to talk about Dubai? Should we get into Dubai? Yeah, can we talk about Dubai? Sure. You make <laughs> so, it sound like well, it's a big deal. In Dubai stays in Dubai. Well, yeah. well McCory, he's you know joking. He says he's mad at you because there's no way to ever top the Dubai sequence. Just the whole thing, not just the Burj, but the whole, the whole. <laughs> he's got a big smile on his face right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you know, just wanted to talk about you know why does that sequence? Why does it work so well? You know. Well, it, it actually starts um i think with the concept of the the two floors over each other and that was in the original script that andre and josh uh, uh wrote both mccory and ellswood said you were obsessed with going through the floor yes as well. yeah yeah I, I mean when they when i first heard that idea and that was in it when i first got involved with it that was already in the script i pitched that idea immediately i said because then you can see both groups and, right. and, and the, the cleverness of the concept becomes visual, meaning uh, that they're directly over each other and it's identical rooms and, uh, and an identical scenario happening right. in, in both rooms. And it's almost like two casts of a, a play, you know, yeah. and, and uh, uh, it, I just thought it was, uh, you know, Andre Nemec and, and Josh Applebaum had that idea. And it's one of the things that made me want to do the movie. It's probably the thing, if I was to say a point where I just went, that's too f***ing cool. I, yeah. I'm in, you know, uh, that idea of two halves of a legitimate uh, transaction are happening, but they're not joined. One half imposters on one floor and one half imposters on the bottom floor. So uh, that got me in right away. And then... Um, then it, you know, they had the, I think they were doing something 
Brian Burke and JJ were in Dubai for some reason, I think for Star Trek or something. I don't know whether they were promoting it there or or something, but they saw the Burj and they said, we should do something with that. So one of the things that was already in place when I uh, got involved, you know, I kept bugging JJ for a script and he kept kind of hiding from me. It was it was like, (laughs) you know, I, I kept calling him and, oh, yeah, I'll get back to you, you know, and then he wouldn't get back to me right away. And then I was at a party that he was at and I started trying to hunt him down at the party. You know, <laughs> where you got me involved in this. When do I get to see a script? And he's like, you know, he's like saying, oh, look over there. And then he's gone. So I'm hunting JJ at this party. I'm thinking, you know, you, they've gotten me involved in this. I haven't seen a script yet. JJ keeps telling me there is a script, but acting strange when I bring it up, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and it's like I was hunting him for his tax returns or something. <laughs> and uh, finally he breaks down and he goes, OK, there is a script. There are many scripts. Which one do you want to read? You know, it's not it's all of them and none of them, you know, <laughs> and, and I'm like. Uh, what? What do you mean? You know, you got me in this under under false pretenses. <laughs> and then I then I find out that basically that's true of every single Mission Impossible film made to that point, that they all have a collection of ideas, but everything is in chaos and being worked on until the last second. And we were no different. We were exactly the same kind of crazed script troubles that every single other Mission Impossible film has had. And I guess it's that there's something about you're making, you know, an adventure that's uh, a mystery, then you yourself must be confused in that process somehow. I don't know what it is, but that's the way that they're made. Every single one of them, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But, they, but, all, they all start action sequence first, it seems like. A list of sequences or heist set, thing. Set, pieces, set yeah, pieces, yeah. Yeah, which, you know, I mean, Jurassic Park has done that way too. I mean, it's, right. it's a way to make a movie. And the truth is, is you kind of want to fall in love with those set pieces because that's what's going to drive you to, to make the movie. You have to fall in, in love with those first because those are the big candy that get you suckered into something that's really complicated and hard. You know, they're kind of the thing that keeps your eyes bright because you go, well, even though this is all screwed up, you know, at least I get to do this sequence, you know, because that's going to just be one of the greatest things ever. And that enthusiasm makes you do the grueling work to make it all connect together and make sense as best you can. So was the Dubai sequence, like when you finally got... Well, here's how that happened, is that they knew that they wanted a sequence that involved climbing on the Burj. And I was sitting there going, "Okay, that's really cool. I like that. I really like the floor switch idea, which didn't need the Burj. It could have been in any building. Yeah, right. But I really like that device. And I like the the fact that the the two uh, scenarios were filled with half imposters on both floors. So uh, I wanted to show how tall the building was. And I was uh, thinking, you know, uh, we aren't going to be able to put people on that building. And it is the tallest in the world. How do we convey that in a shot? You know, in other words, everyone gets that it's tall, but I want them to know it's ridiculously tall. Right. 
And so I was thinking, well, if, if I show it, poke above the clouds. And there's actually a shot sort of influenced by that in Incredibles 2 of that original notion. I was going to say that. And that sort of looks like the Burj, the Deeper the Tower. Well, D-Burge it kind of does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but uh, 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 in any case, I wanted to show that it's a cloudy day below this thing. And then a, 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 the upper half is up where only planes are, which is kind of true of the one in Dubai. The only thing that you see at that level, once you get above a certain height, are planes. You know, and and so I thought, okay, that's a great way to show it. So I mentioned that to Jeffrey Chernoff, one of the producers, and he says, well, you know what it should be. It shouldn't be clouds. It should be a shamal. And I said, what's a shamal? He said, it's these sandstorms that they get there every once in a while. And so I'm thinking, yeah, okay, that's cool. It's a sandstorm. And I kind of Google sandstorms and some of them come in and it's a, a daytime and within a minute, it's so dark, it looks like it's the middle of the night. I mean, it goes from daytime to the middle of the night inside of a minute. And wow. And so once I saw that, I went, no, you should have a chase scene in a shamal. Because I thought uh, one of my favorite things in movies is, of course, the sequence from North by Northwest, where it's the middle of a day. It's the most unthreatening looking atmosphere it could possibly be because you can see off into infinity and it's a road and there's you know it there's no people and and yet this thing comes in out of the blue and and suddenly the guy's in deep trouble and it's the middle of nowhere you know and i liked i thought what's the opposite of that the opposite of that is not having any visibility even though it's the middle of the day and I thought that's a great thing for a chase scene to have happen. So I started developing this chase scene in, in the sandstorm. And so once you do that, you have to set up the sandstorm and you have to do it in a way that the audience doesn't feel is totally phony baloney that a sandstorm just happens when the, you know, shit is hitting the fan on, a, on another story level. Yeah. Right. And so the way that I figured out we could do that is to have them remark that it's coming earlier on, but it's so far off that it's not a problem. That shot that bends around him. I love that you pan and move and show it. That way you don't cut That's a phony door, by the way, that we had to build specifically to get that shot. That's actually... So the camera could have room to turn and see? There's a wall there when the shot begins that we have to pull out by the end of the shot in order to get the shot. That's so cool. And, uh, uh, yeah, I designed that shot because I wanted... You to see him seeing the Shamal. Yeah. That was to set up that the Shamal was coming and do it in a way that nobody's going to think anything of it so that when it hits, nobody's going, well, that's convenient. Yeah. You know, that the storm is happening right at the most uh, intense point of the action scene. Right. But because we set up that it was coming, the audience totally accepts it. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, that's uh, one of the cool things about uh, movies and stuff is that the audience will accept crazy information if you serve it up to them the right way. Right. If you don't, and it's really easy to not be, do that. If you don't, they just spit it out and hate you 
you know, <laughs> but if you can serve it up and make it look delicious and, you know, fit color wise with everything else on the place setting and right. all this, they will gobble it right up and not have a problem. No one ever had a problem with the fact that the sandstorm hits at the most dramatic point that it possibly could. And it's a crazy idea. Yeah. yeah. Well, it feels inevitable. I don't know. Somehow when you watch, right. I mean, it's, 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 as soon as it happens, you're like, oh, of course this is going to happen right now. <laughs> yeah. It totally right. works. But there's enough other stuff happening that you kind of forget yeah, about the sandstorm. Yeah. 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 Uh, I think I've asked you this before, but now we really need to dig into this. Why does Hendrix disguise himself as the other guy? And how does he as have the Wistrum. I as Wistrum, Wistrum and have the how does seemingly have a- IMF proprietary mask technology? Well, I always thought the masks was kind of a. You know, I mean, you do a great job of undercutting the masks because they don't ever use any in the in the movie. It never works. They keep trying. Well, that was one of the ideas that I pitched. They said, "What do you want to do?" I said, "I want to have the great gadgets, and I want to have them all fail." Right. Right. Yeah. And so that's a running joke in the film that the technology is is a problem, not uh, a solution. Right. You know. Um, Which works so well, and the the they got they went a little crazy with the masks in part two and three. So it was a nice like when we saw Ghost Protocol and the way that they like the masks uh, like the that the design the it's a Sid Mead I think design for right. the the for mask, the mask creation but yours thing. has two yours has two heads two heads right. yeah and it was they didn't neither they you know they don't work that great look from Paula Patton when she looks was like it didn't didn't work yeah know, the mask yeah. didn't go through yeah well we wanted to make it look like an upgrade from the previous one and then have it fail yeah, yeah. you know what I mean because yeah. it's like yeah. And, and, you know, the glove technology fails and, yeah. and all that stuff. Well, that's a, another idea I had was the, the gecko gloves. Yeah. And, and it's because um, the geckos have fibers that, that kind of pull out almost like uh, quills on a por- porcupine, you know. They're tiny, but they kind of come out and allow them to grip on anything. Mm. And so I read something that uh, was about uh, how um, – electricity could be used to to do that and it's it's not a thing but it's close enough to being a thing <laughs> that i thought well they might have a prototype you right. know? and it's a prototype that sometimes works really well yeah and sometimes doesn't work at all <laughs> and uh, i thought it was a funny character thing to have simon's character always have complete faith in things that he knows or have a, you know a, a certain percent chance yeah. of failure, and it was know? the only it was the only stuff that they could kind of grab too, right? Right, because the IMF is shut down. Right, it's just all the they, stuff have they have is what's on the train. On the right. train, right. yeah, right. Which and yeah, but the train car is really cool. Yeah, yeah. You know, oh, it's yeah. Just, are the yeah. are the notes that the train makes the first three notes of the theme song? Oh, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, we were because we were watching it recently. Yeah. It's like this so, Renner and Cruz are waiting for the train, and then they hear a train sound, and then they go, That's our train. And when the last time listening, it was like, Oh, are those the first couple of notes from the Mission Impossible theme? Well, Is that why have, they it know? Might have been, it's not my idea, but it, it <laughs> might have been a sound idea. Yeah. yeah. It might have been a Rydstrom idea. Actually. Right. Oh, uh, right. Yeah. Uh, well, the, we another thing that we love from the beginning are the different motifs and themes for the that the theme goes through for each location. Yeah. Right. Was that always was that another sort of idea that you had come up with initially? Like the theme is going to have a different iteration for each sort of location. Well, Giacchino is really good at that stuff. He kind of gets into um, sort of giddy psychological level of uh, music. And, uh, you know, music is almost like um, the uh, 
aural uh, equivalent of perfume or something. You know how if you smell a perfume, it, it, if it's a distinctive smell, suddenly you're in whatever place you were first when you smelled that smell or if it was a location that you returned to a lot, it just is instant. Um, that's what light motives do um, in music. And there are infinite number of ways to take uh, an identifying signature of music and, and adapt it in, in different ways. And he loved, you know, as I do, the, the original theme song. Again, it's, it's one of the great ones. It's, it, it almost seems too good for television. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I shouldn't say that because there's a lot of great theme songs for television. But it's the kind of thing, it, everyone knows that and everyone remembers it. So uh, I think he's always looking for ways of, of making a, a movie, you know, kind of let those feelings intersect and drift in from another part of the movie. We'll be back with more from Brad Bird after the break. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Well, we have another very serious question about the locations, too. Sure. The title cards, they don't seem like they were something that was always built in. They seem sort of last minute because it just seems like you would have done something crazier with the, you know, every time a title of a location comes up. Did, were those last minute? Did you have other ideas for title cards? Um you mean the font? Well, just the font. Yeah, it's pitched about the font a little bit. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, I don't know. You know, the film was huge. It was shot on five <laughs> continents. Give me a break, you know? <laughs> Jesus. I thought it's not a condemnation. No, I'm just saying <laughs> you're <laughs> touching a nerve because there was, <laughs> no. there was shit on the internet about oh, that. Oh, okay. About my okay. selection of a typeface. Like okay. it's apparently a very mundane typeface. <laughs> and it, and you know, I love typefaces. Yeah, so yeah. so I'm sensitive toward it, you know. And it's like now I feel like I failed on the typeface <laughs> front, you know. The font front. No, no. Yeah. But uh, uh, yes, okay, I concede all you niggly Twitter sphere people that yes, we could have chosen a better typeface for that, but Jesus. You guys have no idea how big and complicated these things are. It's like somebody, uh, you know, escaping from a war zone and you're going, you could have chosen better pants, you know? And so, you know what I mean? Uh, the dancing water sequence in India. Very, very nerdy question, but was that inspired by the, the water outside of the Imagination Pavilion at Epcot? Dancing when you water. track the water, you like oh pan, you no, pan no, across. no, okay. no, was the was water no, no, okay. Um, it was just we, uh, Jim Bissell found that location, which was a miracle because we needed something that stood in for this Indian palace, and it was actually a hotel that hadn't opened yet. 
And that enabled us to have free use of the main entrance of it, which is what we used for the party. And they had that fountain there. And as we were filming the sequence, I watched this series of, it was like a two minute series of actions that happened in that water. And I started getting obsessed with somehow integrating it into a shot that connected Sidorov with Ethan Hunt. I actually, there's a story behind it. Um, I don't know if you want to go in. Oh, we do. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm watching that. We're shooting this sequence. It's, we did not shoot it correctly because they got all these rich people in Dubai that, that would be, were chosen for their looks, you know, and they thought they were they thought this would be quite entertaining to be in a big Mission Impossible movie. Now get dressed up and the camera will linger over me and we'll laugh about it later. You know, and so this is what everybody in the room thinks. So <clears throat> very stupidly, I will say, in retrospect, we choose to do the, the close shots first which is exactly the opposite of the way we should have done it. We should have shot all the shots wide of the room to get as many of the party goers in as possible because we didn't factor in that over a couple of days, these people are not going to be so interested in being there. They started getting bored pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. At first, they are all trying to crowd into these kind of two shots where we're trying to focus on Paula and uh, Anil Kapoor, and they're trying to pack into the back of the shots. And we're saying, would you guys back off a little bit? You know, the scene actually isn't about you. It's about the two actors in the frame. And so by the time we were getting wide on the room, people were starting to not show up and leave and stuff because we weren't paying them for it. You know, yeah. they're just local rich people in Dubai who have other things to do mm-hmm. that are more amusing to them than take 15 of them pretending to chat, you know, at a party. So we were scrambling to hold together the room. Anyway, in the midst of all that, I'm seeing this fountain and I'm watching it do this stuff over and over again. And I'm starting to conceive the shot where I can use the water, the direction of the water to follow one of the water things that's kind of jumping and, you know, from one side of the fountain to the other and follow it to the villain, right? The Sidorov. Um, so I start saying, look, we could lower the camera in the middle of the fountain and it actually there's enough room for the camera. And you just, at this point, you lower the camera down and then you have 40 seconds to get the shot and then pull it out before the water goes on the camera again, right? Oh, cool. And so I start doing this and they're basically saying, yeah, 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 we'll get to that. And and so we shoot some more shots. And then I say, OK, are we ready to do the shot now? And they were going like, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get to it. And pretty soon I start to realize they're waiting to get to the end of the night. And then they're going to toss this shot. They're going to say it's too hard because what am I doing? I'm lowering a very expensive Panavision camera in the middle of this fountain with water all around it that somehow miraculously is not touching it. And and so pretty soon I'm getting pissed because I want the shot and I see that they're playing me. Right. They're, right. they're pushing the shot to the end of the night and then they're going to say we don't have time for the shot. 
And so I go and I blow up. Right. Because at, at this point, it's been a grueling shoot. You know, it's late. It's the middle of the night. It's hard to make this movie. And I start going, well, shit. OK, you direct the film. Right. I'm blowing up. It's my only meltdown in the film. Right. And. Tom is on the other side of a gargantuan room and like a dog who somehow can hear this, this whistle, you know, <laughs> his head snaps over and he comes over. What's what's going on? What's going on? <laughs> and I, I'm telling you, I got pissed, but I wasn't like making a giant, giant scene. I was right. making a small scene and somehow he heard it from way across like a football field away <laughs> and he's over there in a second like what's going on what's going on and i'm going nah, nah, they won't give me the f- damn shot and i know it'll work and da 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 and you know i've been patient i've been doing all the other shots i want to do the shot and tom goes well let's do the f-ing shot <laughs> and and he's just like i can't believe anybody's resisting you on this and suddenly every other person on the floor who's been resisting me goes hey, all right we're setting up for the shot you know cuz cuz tom said that right so that's an example he had my back on yeah. that whole film and the second that he got wind that that you know i wasn't getting to do the shot that i wanted to do he just made it happen like with a snap of a finger yeah and and that was really great you know he was incredibly supportive uh so we did the shot and the one of the guys that was fighting me a little bit was robert elswit and i hate to admit this because you know but robert elswit was actually a little bit right that that Probably the smarter way to shoot it would have been to shoot it without the fountain and add the fountain. Because when the camera panned quickly enough to follow the water thing, you lost the specificity. Specificity? Yeah, you did it. (laughs) Yeah, that's a tough one to say. (laughs) Easy to read, tough to say. Um, But of the shot, that the, the blur, the camera had to move fast enough that you, it kind of blurred the water a little bit. And it's in there and it works, but... Is there a cut in the middle or no? There is not. I oh, love okay. that I mean, it's yeah. so great. It's such an amazing way to use the geography to... Well, thanks. I'm glad you think so. A lot of people would just do it with a cut. Robert had his you know? doubts that he thought that, that the blur would lessen the effect of the shot. And he was actually right that it that it was a little softer in the film than what I was hoping. Okay. For. Right. It still works. It's an oh, amazing cool. shot. Yeah. I mean, well, we, thank you. Yeah. you it was hard fought that. to get yeah. that yeah. shot. We're yeah. glad that we, we have the balls to ask you about the water shot. You okay. Know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you've said that you uh, you hung out with Cruz. You've said this a few times. You watched you hung out with him, watched some movies before this. Before you made the movie, so what? You know, obviously he's a big film buff, and and and. Well, no, we didn't watch uh, movies. We talked about talked movies. About, okay. okay, so and we had all seen the movies and knew which part. It, it was like movie shorthand. So which 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 what were those, some of the movies you had? What was the, well, what like, those conversations like, like, like me like me saying I want you to throw a, a rock here and and I didn't. He's instantly Cooler King, right. and I'm like. Yeah, Cooler King, you know. He not only has the film, but he has the name of the character, right. you know. And it's like, uh, um, so that's the way it is talking movies with him, is he has a, uh, a huge knowledge of him. And the other thing that was fun was he knows exactly the machinery of movies. Like, I would, I would have a shot of him, like uh, a close-up that was composed in kind of a, 
weird way and I'm trying to set up the shot and I'm lowering it and I'm going, eh, eh, you know, and, and I'm, I'm not able to describe it. My brain's getting tired or something. And I'm kind of going, eh. and he goes, what lens is it? And I go, it's a 40. And he adjusts his head instantly to, toward the lens. Wow. And bam, that's exactly it. That's what I want. But he just said, what lens is it? And I told him the lens yeah. and he turns his head and raises his shoulder a certain way. And now it looks great. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, he just has that sort of knowledge. Yeah. Well, I mean, what, was it having him and McCory and Ellswit, did that sort of soften the blow at all of this enormous? Well, it did. But, you know, when we first started shooting, <clears throat> I had not done a live action film. And this is kind of like, uh, you know, I haven't played uh, football before. Okay, and I'm in the Super Bowl. Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> and so uh, I was very, I mean, look, I'd studied film a tremendous amount. I think that Tom could look at the sequences I'd done in animation and see that I composed shots in a certain way and my edits were a certain way. So I, I knew the language of film, but I hadn't had the experience of being on a set more. I had a little bit. I'd been a screenwriter for a movie. We did. I wrote a live action episode of uh, Amazing Stories that I storyboarded. That you were also in? I, I, I rewatched also it. In. Yeah. Yes. Scientist number two? Yes. Yes. Scientist number two. <laughs> my big acting debut. <laughs> Uh, when they assign a number after your character, you know that you've made it. <laughs> Guy with upset stomach number three. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, so uh, what were we talking about? You you going live action? Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. So so we're uh, we're kind of we have to hurriedly scout the film. Because Paramount delayed giving us money to scout while they worked out some deal with Tom. Right. So they were being kind of hardball guys. And it ended up to me, it's it's it, I, I was against it and I was vocal about it with the head of the studio. I said, you know, this, we're not doing this for fun. We're doing it to make the movie good. And so even if you decide to cancel the movie or whatever, you should let us if you think you're going to make the movie, you should let us scout now because we're running out of time. We, you know, we have to start shooting by da-da-da in order to make this Dubai for November. And, you know, I mean, it's a complicated. Yeah. Right? So I'm just hanging out. We're scouting in Prague and I'm just taking in information from everybody. I'm not saying a lot and I'm not asserting myself a lot. And the AD and Elswit take me out to dinner and say, well, look, we got to talk with you. And I'm like, well, what, what? And they're like, um, we're getting a little freaked out that that, that this is going to be overwhelming for you when, once we start shooting. And I said, well, why, why? And and they said, well, you know, you, you know, you will have to assert yourself and all this. And later, I thought, well, right now, everyone I'm surrounded with has more experience in doing their jobs and the machine than I do. If you ask me what good filmmaking is, like what a nice edit is, how shots should be orchestrated, I can talk to, tell, you know, I can talk for days on that. But if you tell me what is the experience of running through, uh, you know, a scene and all that, I haven't done it. So I'm all ears right now. And I, I intend to be all ears. 
they were worried that my personality was going to get mowed over by the process of the machinery. A lot of people do when, when they work on films that are this big and complicated. It's easy to get run over by the machine. But the second we started filming, I started asserting myself because it's like now we're into getting the shots that are going to make the film. Now I have a very strong opinion and I do know what a 25 is versus a 40 and I can ask for the right lens and, and all of that. In fact, um, the fact that I had worked on two CG animation films rather than going from hand-drawn animation to live action was a helpful step because in computer animation, the lenses mock real lenses. Right. Um, and, you know, one thing when I came to Pixar, I said, what is this lens? And they'd say, it's a 14. And I said, what would it be if it were an actual lens? And they would go, oh, and they'd do a bunch of math. And then they'd go, <laughs> it would be like a between like a 24 and a 25. And I'd go, why don't you call it a 24 or 25? Like the language of the entire world. Maybe that is what we should do rather than some obscure number system that only you guys use. Yeah. And, and, and so for the. Did they switch? They did eventually. But it, it, took, it was like hitting a dog on the nose with a rolled up newspaper and over again until the dog corrects its behavior. But I just kept saying translation and they'd go and they hit their calculator, you know, and pretty soon they got. So I would just say, I want this to be a 25 and they would yeah. make it a 25. And and so so what I'm saying is going from uh, three dimensional uh, CG animation to live action was an easier jump because the language uh, and what lenses do is the same. So uh, I once we started shooting, I had no problem asserting myself because now we're making the movie. But until that time, I want to listen to what everybody's doing. I'm not asserting myself because you're just telling me how the machine works. Once I know how the machine works, then I'm fine. Yeah. You know? Um, so in a way it was upsetting to me because I thought, Oh Jesus, am I screwing it up already? But once we started shooting, I didn't have any problems saying no, not this, that. Yeah. And, yeah. Some people actually liked me more before when I was valuable, <laughs> you know, because I had very specific things that I wanted. Right. And, you know, people would sometimes go, well, OK, if you want that. And then they see the finished film and they see, oh, you right. know, that actually makes sense. Yeah. You know. back with more from Brad Bird after the break. Elswit said that you watched uh, Die Hard before you started and some James Bond movies. Well, I had seen them all. I know. Yeah. Well, I know. Obviously, you've seen it. But I mean, you you watched together with him or you discussed with him? We discussed. Robert. Again, Robert's a guy who's seen a lot of films, so you don't have to. Yeah, I was one of the things that I wanted to change for our installment of the mission Impossible, as I wanted there to be more humor. I wanted it to be funnier. And I felt like there's a way to do that that does not come at the expense of action. You know, um, a lot of people think that if you have comedy in there, that you're going to take the sting away from the action and both Raiders and Die Hard to me had humor in them, but they are balls out action movies that really are, I think the best that have been done. And so I wanted that 
quality, that sort of rollicking quality, um, where it, it's um, the shorthand I had with Tom was I would mime eating popcorn voraciously with your eyes glued to the screen going, you know, and I'd say, you know what kind of thing I'm looking for? And then I'd mime like eating a big fistfuls of popcorn and shoving them into my face as I'm avidly watching whatever. And then Tom added like sucking on a giant Coke. He'd like finding the straw, you know, in your mouth, <laughs> and going, you know, and that was our shorthand for like movie moments, you know, right. that, where you're just crazy into it. Yeah. And um, he got a kick out of that. So that became our shorthand of like. This is this is what we're going for. Were there certain James Bond movies that were more um, your favorites that you were thinking yeah, about? Yeah, Goldfinger and From Russia with Love, and you know, there's a a fight in uh, From Russia with Love that I love in the train car because it's a confined space and it's a vicious fight. And um, did that you know, inspire the Paula Patton fight? Yeah, to some yeah, yeah. to some a certain extent, sure, absolutely, and you know. Um, we wanted a fight between uh, uh, two women that was as brutal as uh, a fight between two guys. There had, th- there's this sort of um, thing that, that men sometimes do with women fighting where they're like, you know, they call them cat fights. Yeah. Or something. Right. And we wanted to do one that was as legit as any guy fight. And, and uh, you know, Paula trained quite a bit for it. Uh, beforehand because she wanted to really be convincing and it's like you do not want to fight this woman she's going to take you down right and then we found Leia Seydu which we thought was just like this gold find you know and we had it designed so that the stunt one woman would be doing a lot of the stuff because we thought well maybe Leia's not into it but once Leia she said, is, you know, is Paula doing it? And we said, yeah, you know, <clears throat> but she's been training and she's like, then give me training. You know? <laughs> and you know, awesome. I want to do it. And so there's only one shot where it's not Leia and it's where she breaks through the table. Right. Um, and that, that is the stunt woman. That's the only, it takes like a second and it's over and everything else in the fight is Leia. Wow. And she got, uh, she had this, you know, really intensive training too. And the whole thing is we wanted to have a different fighting style with them. Um, whereas Paula is the highly trained, you know, agent um, fighting style, like very by the book. Whereas Leia's style is more like a street fighter. You know, somebody who's probably had, even though she's pretty, she's probably had a rough time growing up and her fighting style is more just grabbing anything. And, you know, it's, it's probably not as quite as proper as, as Paula's style. And, and, you know, she grabs a corkscrew at one point and jams it between her fist. And like, that's a, that's a real street fighter sort of move. So I enjoyed doing that. That was fun to shoot because it was a little more handheldy and, and I wanted it to be that way than some of the other fights. And, and, um, I think it's a really good fight. One thing that I don't know how much of this we can talk about, but another thing that changed while you were making this movie, Elswit mentioned, this. okay. Elswit mentioned this with, this was supposed to be Tom's sort of swan song. And there was a lot of massaging done by Macquarie and, and I know Lindelof. And did you have well, a did you have a philosophy on this? I mean, well, um, it never was to me. OK, you know, I sort of knew that. I mean, I heard that, but it was almost like 
an alternate narrative to the reality that I was okay. in. To me, it was a ridiculous argument because you spend two seconds with Tom, you realize he looks great. He's beyond fit. Um, he has probably never been not fit in his entire life. And so he, pr- he looks 15 years younger than he is, and he can run faster than a lot of 30-year-olds. And you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's like, I guess on paper, he's had a long career, but it had no bearing on what I saw. So for me, he was always the star of the movie. I did hear that <clears throat> Paramount was because the previous mission had not done as well at the box office, I think that they were thinking that was somehow Tom was, uh, you know, burning out on the roll or or something ridiculous. But you see the J.J. movie. To me, you know, it's it's a good uh, Mission Impossible movie, you know, and Tom's great in it. And I, I don't I, I didn't see it, you know. Yeah. So to me, I never treated it as anything other than a Tom Cruise vehicle. However, one of the other things I wanted to do with my Mission Impossible was I wanted to have the team be a little more of a team. Um, I felt like if I were to have a gentle criticism of some of the other films, it was that it was Tom and some other guys, yeah, you know, that and some other guys that you will not care about. Right. Right. And sometimes they were good actors, but they weren't given a lot to do. And Tom was never the guy saying, I have to do everything. He would often want to do things. If you came up with something cool, he would want his character to do it. But it was more like a puppy that just wants to go after the ball. Right. Right. It's not that he's saying, I can't share the screen with anybody. So if I said, no, no, I think I want to give this to so-and-so and and this to da-da-da, he was fine with it. In fact, he, he loved... Um, having the other characters take lines because it made them a credible team. Yeah. And, and I, I was wanting to make it a more of a team film than other mission impossibles. And Tom was fine with it. You know, he, he liked it. Um, He would still, if there was a new idea, he would go, Oh, can I do that? You know, but it was, (laughs) it was not a star saying I have to get all the good lines or anything. It was more like, uh, it's more like if a ball is fumbled in football, the guy who loves football the most will scramble over people to jump on the ball. And it's just he's <laughs> so enthused about making movies that he just wants to grab the ball. Yeah. And, but he's he's not he you know, if you just say, no, let's do it. He, he's like, oh, great. Yeah. You know, he's not he's. Super easy to work with, but he also is demanding. You have to be on your game. He expects everyone to have done their homework and everyone to move sharp, you know, and that's the way these movies get made for a price is they're big movies and he runs a very tight set. But that for me, that was a huge advantage. You know, I, I felt like I lucked out having my first live action film be with Tom Cruise because not only does he run a tight ship and and is a great guy to collaborate with, but he also is willing to do something like swing off a building (laughs) that is, is, you know, halfway up the building is, is as tall as the empire state building. It's almost twice as tall as the empire state building. And that's him. That's not somebody else. Well, you, you, 
were the one that added the, the line about the syndicate at the end of the movie. Yes. Uh, were you surprised to see McCory take that ball uh, with five? And, and, uh, and no, where, where did no. that come from, I mean, that idea? To yeah. Uh, Obviously, the sh- it's from the show. Yeah. Chris came on the film after we had done a lot of the big sequences. And we kept saying, well, well, who did X? Or how does this relate to Y? And... Everybody go, uh, I don't know. We'll figure it out in Vancouver. In other words, all the connective tissue was being shot in sound stages in Vancouver. And so we kept kicking the can down the road. And pretty soon I was screwed because I don't know what to tell actors. You know, Renner was like, do I hate her? Do I want to make love to her? You know, <laughs> what am I doing? And I'm like, it'll all make sense later. Just have faith. Young Jedi or whatever, you know, and and it, I was starting to like say I can't keep doing this. I, I have to know the answer to this stuff, right? And uh, <laughs> so we brought Macquarie in, and Macquarie had this very pragmatic approach of like, why do we need to keep this a mystery? What, in other words, we keep adding every time we ask a question, we answer it with more questions. Uh, he said, eventually the audience is going to tune us out and we don't want that. So why, you know, and I, I'd say, why do we need to keep this question, the answer to this question, a mystery? Just answer the question. And I was like, great. You know, we started doing that and suddenly I knew it became very clear how to direct these scenes again, because this is no longer a mystery. The answer to that question is this. And now we're proposing a new question, but we've cleared the decks. So that new question can be asked. And there's a really funny photograph that I took on the set. And it was in the, the uh, hotel room in Dubai, which was a set. And on, on, there was a bed that was in one of the uh, was in the hotel bedroom in the movie, and McCory is leaning up against the pillow like he's sitting on the bed. I mean, he is sitting on the bed, but it's the set bed, and he's writing on his computer. And on the end of the bed are two producers stressing out over <laughs> what he's writing, like how to make it work in the schedule with the money that we have. And I called the photo cause and effect. It's like, he's on, he's very comfortably nestled into the pillows writing away. And then these two guys are sitting just completely angsting on the end of the bed. It was like, it was like watching idea be born and then cause somebody pain, like, like, you know, passing a stone or something, you know, (laughs) Um, but he he came in and, and worked for a few weeks and, and did some some good simplifying and and all of that. Um, but I also want to say that Andre and Josh did the heavy lifting of the the, the a lot of the stuff that uh, got involved. And, you know, they came back and, uh, and did more writing when Chris had left because there were some issues with some of the stuff that Chris had done for the climax that they they said, well, you need to answer this. And, and, and so it's like, that's fine. You know, I, uh, they, they certainly did the heavy lifting and deserved a lot of credit for that movie. But Chris also came in and did some very smart, um, uh, rewriting. 
And, you know, I did some writing on the film, too. And Damon Lindelof's did some writing. I didn't do enough to get a credit, but I, I wrote... There are lines that I wrote scattered through the film. There's part, parts where I simplified. Uh, I remember there was a big scene with Sidorov where he was asking these questions of Tom when he came in at the end after Tom is on the ground and he's stopped the missile and all this. There was this big, long scene of like, well, I knew that you had come to the blah, blah, blah. And right. I said, he's just crashed into the ground. He's not going to want to talk. Yeah. But I, this is like right before we're filming it. So I'm cutting lines and cutting lines. This is a half hour before we're filming it. Yeah. And, and I just proposed to Tom. I sat down with Tom and I said, why don't we give all the, this, the talking to Sidorov and have you just kind of most you can do is nod, yeah, you know, and then have him ask hospital, yeah, and then have that. him just go yes, <laughs> yeah, hospital. It's, it's, it's got that diehard. Like you're talking about with Die Hard and Raiders of the Lost Ark with the, the the hero really going through. You really feel how hurt they are right. at the end. Well, it was worse that, at know. one point. I I wanted him to break his leg and actually have the bone of his leg when he was crawling around. I wanted him to have a broken leg and do it with an effect, you know, put a little blue screen leg and have him drag it and then have ILM. It'd be like one of those Joe Theismann kind of, you know, you don't want to look at it kind of things. But Tom didn't want him to be in the cast in the last scene. And I kind of went, okay, that makes sense. (laughs) So we, we do the sequence, but he just didn't break the leg, but he does make the leg kind of useless and he has to drag it around. Yeah. So, so uh, the car, because the car like clips him, the, feel that ankle. Yeah. 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 So, um, so that was another scene that that they didn't know how it fit or what it was, but they said we want there's these there are these car parks in Germany that were that are automated, and we want to do something in a car park. But that's all they had was we want to do something at the end in a car park. Yeah. So, but that's the kind of challenge that I like. It's like okay, what is that? You know, how does it go? You know, how do you have a fight between this guy and Tom Cruise when Tom Cruise? can clearly outrun this guy. So the answer is, you know, he catches him and, and still the fright gets brutal, you know? Yeah. And, um, well, it feels like it's out of a silent movie. It's a beautifully orchestrated sequence though. It feels like, it feels like Harold Lloyd. I mean, that's what it's meant to be as a nasty Harold Lloyd. Was there a specific Harold Lloyd movie or anything you were thinking? Well, I mean, the obvious one is safety last, but I mean, you know, Harold Lloyd was uh, a physical, uh, in a different way, than Keaton and Chaplin. He maybe wasn't quite as adept and at mime, but he was really good at creating scenarios that were dangerous and or, or looked dangerous and, and, you know, getting the most out of them. And, you know, nobody disputes that, that Chaplin and Keaton are, you know, you know, a tier above him. But Harold Lloyd is not in the discussion as much as he should be because yeah. he made some really good movies that and he's got a very distinctive sort of thing. And uh, so, uh, yeah, the safety last is probably the ob- obvious one. But we did that a little more on the on the Burge with the glove kind of hanging on, you know, and right. him discovering the glove. <laughs> That's kind of Chuck Jones, too. You yeah. Know? The glove uh, going back. Yeah. 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 Um, but so the car park is, is meant to be more of a vicious fight, but it's meant to be very cinematic, you know. And yeah. if you turn off the sound, it works just fine, I think. 
which is a good test for uh, a sequence, by the way, is if you can pull it off without sound. If, if, you, if the audience isn't confused about what's happening without sound, then, then you're in a good place. Yeah. Shit. Well, we need to wrap up and let you move on with your day, but we always ask. Oh, no. Hen- you can go a little more. Okay, you. okay. <laughs> uh, we wanted to ask about the villain, about Hendrix. Um, uh-huh. I think that it seems like he went through a lot of changes specifically. Or, or at least cut down. Or at least cut down. It, you know, his, his motivation yes. isn't quite there. I mean, wh- yeah. what was the initial, you know... Well, uh, we shot stuff. We shot more scenes with him, but they didn't pan out very well. Uh, I mean, you know, which goes, which happens on all movies where you shoot something with something in mind and then you edit it together and it doesn't quite hold its weight when you have the other scenes around it. So we ended up pairing uh, him back. Um, He's a very nice actor, no longer with us, named Michael Nyquist and he was in uh, the original version of um, Dragon Tattoo yeah Girl with the Dragon Tattoo the, the he's the villain in the first John Wick he's really great yeah in that yeah, yeah yeah no he's he was a wonderful actor and he was certainly game on this and you know he had a fear of heights and yet we had him <laughs> jumping down on these things in the car park and you know he was game he did it you know but he did he really was like oh please don't make me do this <laughs> And we're like, come on, man, you know, you're the villain. You got to bring it, <laughs> you know. So uh, but uh, originally that that was a bigger the character had more scenes and it had more to do with him going mad from I forget what they call oh, it. That's right, because he was he was doing scenarios for Russia and America and he started to go crazy. Then. Right. Yeah. And and that was an interesting idea, but we never got there in terms of pulling it off in the script. When we talked about it, it sounded great, but we never were able to translate it to scenes that worked. And we had some really interesting ideas. And there was this place that we were going to shoot at outside Prague that had um, was like a a mansion uh, uh, that had a a giant floor that was checkered uh, marble. And it looked like a chess, uh, a chess board. And we were going to have a key scene of him talking uh, in this room and have the subtext be that he's all about chess. And again, you, you start talking about it this way. It sounds really cool. Yeah. <laughs> and and yet for one reason or another, you know, because we, you just start making these movies and you've answered some questions and you haven't answered others and you're gambling on. You're trusting that you're going to come up with answers by the time that you need to (laughs) in order to pull it off. And, you know, I mean, the last scene in the film um, was shot where he's uh, sitting with the members of his team and having a beer. And uh, the first version of it that we shot uh, on the set, it was just kind of Ethan. It was a very strange pep talk. And I kind of talked Tom out of it. I mean, we shot it, but I, I felt that, that it, it didn't work because uh, Tom was essentially pep talking the team by saying how it was going to wreck their lives. You know, I mean, he was describing something like, yeah, you won't be able to have personal relationships or you won't have da, 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 da. And it was done. It was nicely written. It sounded sort of heroic. But if you you kind of stopped and thought about it, 
He's basically painting a very bleak picture about their lives, and yet they're strangely moved by it. Like, I want to do this. Yeah. And and it was kind of the best we could do by the the point that we had to shoot it. And we even had a conversation of not shooting it, getting the scene right, and then bringing people back together. But Tom, who's done a million movies, said, you want to have something in the can because you don't know what's going to happen down the line. And even if it doesn't entirely work, you have something, you know? And so that made sense to me. And so we shot it. And then uh, Tom said, I think this is going to, I think this is going to work. And I said, I think it'll work too. I think we'll get through the audience screening and they'll like it. I said, but I said, I'm not happy with it yet. We have these holes this, 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 and this. And I think we can fix these, you know? And Tom says, well, let's screen it first and see how it goes. I said, it's going to go well, but that doesn't change the fact that, that, <laughs> you know, I said 20% of the audience is going to be kind of where I am right now and go, well, this doesn't hold up to thought. So uh, we tested, it tested really well. Again, any other studio would have been happy with it. And Paramount was happy with it. But um, I said, we could answer these questions without much reshoots. We should do them because it, now it's for us, right? We want to make it so that we like it. And, and Tom said, okay, you know, we figured out how to do it in the most Ed Woody, you know, um, <laughs> if it wasn't on screen, there was nothing there, you know? <laughs> so you'd go into it, just a shit warehouse that was going to be our soundstage for today and build enough of the set so that Tom, it looks like the set is behind Tom's head, but it literally is just a frame of the set, like a, a, a painting, you know, you know, I mean, it's that much set is what I'm saying. Like a large painting, that's how much set there is. And if you move the camera one inch to the left or the right, the the illusion's gone. So it was totally Ed Wood, right? (laughs) But we got this very surgical list of things to fix. And um, it's kind of instructive. I would have to show you the film and say, this is what we changed mm-hmm. here. But one shot could change the tenor of a scene and make the character a character that you liked rather than a character that looked like he was picking up his ball and going home, you know. And so it's little adjustments like that. And Damon rewrote the scene of uh, he rewrote the jet scene and we shot it at the Santa Monica airport and added Dubai in the distance. Oh, wow. And, and did it with Tom's jet in the background. Wow. And uh, see the what producer, said. David Ellison's jet. Those were the two jets, <laughs> you know, so they didn't charge us because it's their <laughs> film, you know, is that when they're going to India? Like we're going right. to India, that scene. Yeah. Okay. And uh, we, we had filmed that scene a couple of times and never gotten it right. And, and Damon wrote that scene and then Damon rewrote the uh, scene, the uh, scene where they're having beers. But we had to rewrite it so that it that we could use enough of the scene that we'd shot on the big set to convince the audience that they were seeing the big set. So we were we were shooting in this just decrepit little piece of it looked like you know winos were collapsing in the alley i mean it was literally between freeways and we could get it for a buck 98 um and we strung these lights and threw them out of focus to make them look kind of like the lights that were in the big scene so it could not have if you saw where we were filming you would be shocked 
It was it was literally like some some <laughs> decrepit part of L.A. And and just through the camera lens, it kind of looked like I said. But we had buildings in the background that were across the river that we lit up very expensively on our original <laughs> shoot. That we don't have those buildings in the back. And some guy takes a piece of foam core and puts black gaffers tape on it and and out of focus it looks like a building i mean i was i was shocked i was like no that's never gonna work man and then i looked through the camera lens and i go oh okay you know so this thing is the cheapest possible thing we could do to fill in this very expensive movie and um the lines were very surgical and when when i cut it we cut it in a way to that we'd cut wide for a laugh or something like that to let the audience know, yep, we're still in the big expensive set. And that's, <laughs> so it was this really great piece of guerrilla filmmaking in terms of everybody rallying and giving just enough information t- for the shots to sit with the other shots. But the rewrite of the scene had to do with explaining Julia and it had to do with Renner's character, uh, believing that Julia was dead and then uh, and seeing that she wasn't. And it was allowing their relationship to get a little bit repaired mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, that was a tough thing to kind of smooth over. Yeah. So Damon did some very clever rewriting there. And we reshot the shot of Julia reacting to him so that she acknowledges seeing to him. The way we shot it in Vancouver, she never sees him. He watches her, but she never sees him. And it was it was cold and kind of sad. It was it was um, cold on her part Mm -hmm. back. And so we refilmed that with her seeing him and nodding so that. She knows that he's there. And that made it more romantic. Yeah. And and so it was all these little surgical adjustments. And then I wrote the scene uh, where they're on the train yard and I wrote some of the guard stuff at the beginning with Bogdan and, you know, um, please tell me that you have a plan and that stuff, you know. So I wrote things that are scattered throughout the movie. But the bulk of the movie is Josh and Andre. And then... Then if the next biggest credit obviously goes to Chris McQuarrie uh, because he did some key scenes, the one with the fog, um, the one where uh, Renner's puts the suitcase out the window, you know, which amped up the pressure for the the role switch, which he rewrote a a little bit. But they they had conceived that scene, which uh, to me was, like I said, one of those things that made me want to do the movie. Yeah. back with more from brad bird after the break the syndicate idea when you when you threw that line there in at the very end where did you remember that was that just a memory of the old show that um, that you had- somebody mentioned it and i remember oh yeah that was that was always the enemy in the show i didn't remember it but somebody brought it up and we thought it would be good to mention did Chris write that? I think Chris might have written that. I don't remember. He what said it was, it was your idea. McCory said to us. Oh that, well, that the syndicate was your idea. I don't. Know. Well, it was <laughs> from that. I remembered it from that. Somebody mentioned it from the show in reference to something else, and I thought, well, that would be handy if you're gonna if you're gonna throw the cookie of the next assignment. Right. 
that would be a handy this. thing to Yeah, to it's do. kind of yeah. the Joker card at the end of that. Yeah, Batman and then Begins. I love yeah. that he followed it up yeah. with his movies, you know? Yeah, it's really cool. Can we talk about Tom Cruise's hair for a minute? Sure. <laughs> We talk a lot about his. We hair. talk about a lot about his hair. And we his hair from changes each movie. Yeah, and, and and this is, I think, the second longest after the, the second movie, the John Woo. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So was that always? Were you a fan of Tom with this hair? I, I think it has a very nice kind of feathered look. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, we we is, wanted right? to, we wanted to begin with him in prison, and that was an idea that, oh, okay. that existed before I came on it, and I liked it. There was also a feeling that, you know, he was in a a rough spot in his uh, career a little bit. Having him break out of a prison at the beginning of the movie was kind of like he's going to break out of all the nonsense that he'd been sort of caught up in, you Mm -hmm. know. And, uh, you know, there was a moment when we were making the film that that uh, we were talking about something. And, and, uh, you know, I, I talked about talking to the press and I said, you can't just like tell them your feelings about everything. And, and he kind of looked at me and went, well, you can, but you'll get, <laughs> I don't recommend it. <laughs> it, was like, it was really funny. So uh, uh, I just think that in some ways that film, um, you know, I think reminded people how vital of a force he is. Yeah. But for me, I heard talk about uh, passing the franchise, but I didn't think of this film as passing the franchise. Yeah. Uh, to me, uh, the the argument was mooted the second you watch him do any of the film. <laughs> yeah. He still really got it, and and he's you know this was you know eight years ago, and he still is, holds the screen like a mofo, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it's like it for me. It was always a Tom film, and and uh, um, but I did believe in building up the team, and I actually think. It, it is good for Tom's character that they are more fully realized characters. And I think uh, Chris does that too, you know, in, yeah. in the films since, you know, uh, Benji to me is, was uh, a tremendous addition to the film. And when I came on to it, one of the things that JJ said is, you know, the Benji, uh, the character Simon Pegg played in, in the, in the one that I did, I went, yeah, yeah, that was great. And he goes, well, he's going to be a part of the team on this. And I went, Great. Yeah. You know, I couldn't wait to work with Simon Pegg. Yeah. yeah. So having that, having his character become another important character to the series, to me, was a really smart move. And uh, I, uh, that was just one more reason for me to do the film. And getting a chance to work with Renner is, I mean, he's an, a fantastic actor. And uh, having Paula prove her stuff as an action heroine, I think, is was a good move. And, and somebody should, you know, cash in on that. And quite frankly, also, someone should do a, a, a action movie with Josh, you know. Um, we love Josh. He's, he really is great in the yeah. opening. I was sad that we uh, ended up um, cutting some of the big action stuff that he was going to do. But by the time we got to that stuff at the end of the schedule, we uh, were, you know, had exhausted. And then to be faced with another giant scene that was going to be very difficult and expensive to shoot. Uh, we felt like we had the movie at that point and uh, that the prison sequence was really a good way to start the movie. So I think that he is, has got the chops to definitely be an action hero on his own. And uh, I hope that 
anyone that looks at that film can see that he could he could do one too. Yeah. And so, uh, but for me, this was always Tom's film and yeah. Tom's franchise, and I was grateful for the opportunity to work with Tom. All right, Charles, ask your hat question. <laughs> there's a there's a hat you wear on set that we love, and we want to get this hat. <laughs> Do you have oh, any? Do you have any extras in the ad? Am I with yeah. the four dots? Because I, I assume you didn't have a title yet. Yeah, well, we called it Aries, Aries when we yeah. right. were shooting it. We came up with Ghost Protocol. I was with Josh and Andre in Dubai, and they said they said the studio wants to call it MI4, and and Tom didn't want to call it MI4, and they didn't. Uh, Josh and Andre didn't want to call it MI4, so we were saying MI Mission Impossible something and we came up with ghost protocol might have been apple bomb that came out up with it because it was mentioned at one point in the script ghost protocol and we thought that's a cool name so uh the hat uh i would go to bad robot Okay. The ones All right, we're gonna do, we'll, we'll we're gonna do a Mission yeah. Impossible heist in there to get one of those. Yeah, things. yeah, two, two of those. Yeah, you think that's cool with the four? <laughs> we can share it back and forth. Yeah, you need an e screen. Yeah, which we haven't talked about, by the way. Yeah, what? A, what? A, where did that come from? That was again an idea Josh and Andre had, but they were kind of vague about how the screen, how it worked, and so I started going. Well, the only thing I can think of is that it will project. It will take a measurements on a hallway and project it, but you can't have it work for everyone. It, it could only really work for one person's perspective. Yeah. yeah. And I said, if you give it that weakness, then I can accept the technology. It, right. It's borderline not acceptable. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, there's I, an episode of the old show where they do that, that yeah. gag with the screen. And it yeah. doesn't really, because, yeah, the perspective wouldn't work. You right. would notice it was and a screen. I, and so I said, so it has to be at a distance and it has to be from one person's perspective. And we have to understand that graphically uh, in the film. And so they kind of went, well, how would that work? And I said, well, let's have it work. And then let's break it. And in the breaking of it, we'll, it'll explain why it doesn't work right. for more than one person. And so when another person enters the room, I, I said, let's have it flip out because yeah. it doesn't know whose perspective to pick. And then we'll see the hallway shift perspective. Yeah, and that's so cool. Yeah, and, and everyone kind of nodded at me with this sort of half... <laughs> You know, foggy look on their face, like, I guess that'll work. <laughs> and so while we were filming it, there was quite a bit of doubt from oh, no. everybody except Tom and Simon. For some reason, those two guys were total believers. Wow. With all due respect to everyone on the set, and they're all brilliant people, there was a lot of not saying it doubt going around. It was pretty much you could cut it with a knife. And I was kind of rushing and saying, okay, now we need to go from the person down to the iPad where you can see this happening and nothing's on the iPad. You know what I mean? So everybody had to suspend a tremendous amount of disbelief to believe that it was going to work. And, and our machine was nicely designed, but it didn't fit to the end of the hall. And there, it was kind of flopping around a lot. And, you know, the first, the first thing where it comes up in front of Tom, we had it practically work, but 
so many takes it didn't work and there's shots of Tom <laughs> looking as this thing kind of has a little spaz attack in front of him and then <laughs> dies. So we literally, you had to get the shots together in order and then have ILM do a little work to, to smooth it out and, and, and make the machine look a, a little sturdier than it was. But once we got it in there with the sound design where you just hear the air conditioner, which makes you aware of everything being silent. If you have no sound, people don't read it as silence. They, right. they, they read it as somehow we have gone deaf. Whereas if you put a tiny bit of sound, then that is the sound of silence is actually a little tiny bit of sound. And Gary Rydstrom uh, and uh, the wonderful geniuses at Skywalker Sound made a really nice uh, sound mix in there, which I think helps the suspense of the sequence. But um, uh, there, a lot of people kind of came up to me after the film was done and, and said, admitted to me that when we were filming, <laughs> they didn't think it was going to work in a million years. Was Hendrix always in those scenes? That was something that you re- you recognized like on second or third viewing, that he's right. always in the background. Was he there? Yeah. Yes. I mean, was that okay? That wasn't like a Yeah, no, I planned okay. it that way. Okay, yeah. And I thought, I thought that's playing fair with the audience. And it's rewarding them for being observant. Yeah. yeah. And, and to have Tom not see it, there are sometimes people who advocate that the heroes are flawless. And I am not one of those guys. And sometimes I had to fight a little bit on this film to, to not have Tom's character know everything. Because, oh, well, he's the hero. And it's like, yeah, but he's also mortal. Yeah. You, know, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so the fact that you, most of the audience does not notice that Hendrix is there and waiting for Ethan to come through in order for, to get his timing right, that also says that conceivably Ethan could not notice him too. Yeah. Ethan, you know, maybe doesn't know totally what he looks like at that point. Maybe they're not suspicious of him too much at that point. In other words, the fact that you don't notice it and the fact that Ethan doesn't notice it makes it feel like fair play. Yeah. And at, by the same token, I try to arrange shots so that something is hidden in the background and the audience sees it maybe a split second before Ethan does. Like the audience goes, he's there. And almost as if Ethan, Ethan hears them, he will turn and go. Yeah. And that's all incredibly deliberate because if you can orchestrate it to where the audience feels like they are the ones discovering stuff and then the camera somehow reacts to their discovery, then it feels like a visceral movie experience. And so there are moments in the chase where the audience sees the character running away from camera less than a fr- second, probably like 16 frames before Ethan does. And it's time to be that way. I just think it makes the movie experience seem more um, like you're living that dream, you know? Right, right. We'll be back with more from Brad Bird after the break. I just want to ask about Luther. 
He sure. came in last minute, right? At the end. <laughs> right. Was, that, was that just a last second addition at the, it was. the last scene? It was. He was originally not designed to be in that movie because it was sort of a movie done on the fly. Right. In other, n- not the movie done on the fly, but meaning the mission. The, the mission is an impro- improvised mission. Right. He doesn't it's, get to pick his team. Or uh, yeah, yeah. He doesn't yeah. have the wherewithal to get Luther and, and do everything by the book. Right. In other words, he's sprung out of prison without him knowing that he's going out. He just suddenly hears that music and knows that he's out. Yeah. But, he, you know, in his mind, he was intending to stay in the prison for another whatever period of time to complete what he's there for. Um, so at the last minute, we thought it'd be really nice to have Luther in this scene. And and McQuarrie came up with the bit where he digs into his pocket and pulls out a, <laughs> a bird for Ethan and, and all that, which I thought was really funny. Yeah. And, you know, it's great to have him in every movie. So yeah. It, it was really good nice. to have Ving come up and, and do that. We also love the idea of Ving always sort of having a scuba exercise. He's got to right. go down yes, to the bottom. That's of right. Yeah. Scuba Luther. Does, yeah. yeah. We're obsessed with the idea that he's a scuba expert because in the Vatican sequence in three, he's doing the scuba work. Right. And then in four, he references that he was down at the bottom of the ocean fixing the, yeah. you know, the leftover the missile, missile yeah. had landed in. Yeah. San and he's kind of he's kind of ragging on him for making him do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Which I like because it makes it like a, a workplace thing. Yeah. 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 Well, our last question is always and if this is only if you're comfortable with it, but can you rank your favorite Mission Impossible movies? From or at least your top, uh, three. top three. Uh, I I enjoy working in the film industry <laughs> and uh, staying friends with all filmmakers. And did you, did you see Fallout? Huh? Did you see Fallout? The new one? Yeah, yeah, I did. did. I, I liked it a lot. Yeah, 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 I really enjoyed it. I yeah. mean, yeah, I'm still. I saw. Chris and Tom, like three weeks ago or a month ago, when shooting uh, Top Gun. Oh, yeah, McCory yeah, Mc- mentioned yeah. that he said just seen you. On yeah, the set. yeah. So, no, I'm still, I, I still am in touch with those guys and, and cool. I think they're great. And, and, uh, uh, yeah. So, uh, I enjoy the mission films. <laughs> are you, are you a big De Palma fan? I am a De Palma fan. Um, I sometimes, I think sometimes he gets a little, goes over the top. Or, there's <laughs> yeah, a that's movie part of the fun, called, yeah. yes, and that is part of the fun. And the Mission Impossible, I think one of the best sequences in the series is that one where he goes, it drops in the room like, and is yeah, suspended. Yeah, I mean, yeah. uh, I think that sequence is just about perfect yeah. and and it's extended it lasts like 15 minutes or yeah, something and it's like mostly silent for and, we kinda, and it was like nine minutes of silence it's crazy yes which was in uh, you know inspiring to me to try to do the e-screen in in silence you yes know? and, and yeah. mine is a little more goofy than De Palma's you know uh, the, the gag of of uh, Benji you know bending right. down in front of the camera and suddenly his, his head, head oh, feels, so fills great. the hall you know well, and there's, a, there's a part that you deleted too where the guard gets so close to the screen it's in the it's on the so Blu-ray de- yeah. yeah yeah and you said too much yeah 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 well we mi- milked it more yes <laughs> we came out and milked it more with Simon's character and it just right. was like nah nah. Well, so there's a shot in, in the Dubai sequence where he's running through from the sandstorm and it's way up high and he kind of goes 
underneath this yes. this building that emerges on the other side. And right. to me, it looked like a shot from Blowout, which is a scene where the Jeep goes through. And oh, the other no. Side. I, I didn't know if it was a reference or anything for you. That's, no. Okay. No. That's interesting, though. It's the first I've heard of that. So, no. so it's like a really, I don't know. It was just like, a geography It was a similar shot. structure of like but running through into the other side. Is that structure next to the, the Burj? Because I actually visited the Burj. It's not. Okay. Because, yeah, I was looking for that. No, no. Building. We're, okay. we're no. You're, pl- you're playing flat, fast and loose. We are. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's fine. Yes. Okay, Cruz <laughs> runs. When he runs, I, he can run fast and right. get far. No, we're we're um, <laughs> in the grand tradition of movie geography being yeah. uh, whatever you want it to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is uh, it is done for maximum popcorn crunching. Yeah. yeah. Well, you Enjoying succeeded. It. Absolutely. Thank um, you so much for so much. making a movie that inspired a uh, oh, now 35 yeah. episodes podcast. <laughs> and uh, Wait, I wanted to talk about that shot. Oh, talk about oh, the shot. Yeah, yeah, oh, wow. Well, um, <laughs> that is one of the few shots that isn't Tom. Whoa. Really? And people this is the said, helicopter shot? Uh, people said, is that Tom doing all that stuff? I said, well, there are three shots without Tom in the movie. And on two of them, uh, I said, together, they last maybe five seconds of the movie. And four seconds of that is like that shot. And we filmed it with Tom running. And uh, the camera kept drifting off because of the wind that day, drifting off the shot. So it kept going off. The start position would be where we want it. The end position would be not. And the the person was not centered in the frame, you know. And uh, so we didn't get the shot. And it was expensive. You have to rent the helicopter. You have to get approval for the airspace, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I said to the producer, we, you know, we have to do it again. And he's like, are you ready to spend this amount of money? And it was considerable. And I said, I said, uh, it was like deeply painful, but I went, yes, we got to at least give it one more try because it's, it's a big shot. It's, it's a, it's a storytelling shot. It's, you probably might want it in the trailer. I don't know, but it's one of those shots. We should do it. And so we got it, but Tom was filming the chase in the same. We were cramped to get everything done before we got out of Dubai. And Tom was filming this sandstorm chase running in the sandstorm with second unit. And so it's not Tom in that high shot running. Wow. And, there's, and it's, you know, Tom would have been great. He probably would have been a little faster than the guy that yeah. we have. But that's not Tom in that shot. And the other two shots that are not Tom are in being hit. And in both shots, the, um, stunt man was injured. And, wow. and, and so, and those two shots together add up to maybe a second since they're like 10 frames of Tom. And then, but Tom is in the shot before it and the shot after it, all the shots that people believe are not Tom are, are Tom. <laughs> and, and these are literally like inserts where we're dropping him on his back or something. And it's like, I can't do that with Tom right. because if he lands slightly incorrectly, he's out for, we have to shut the movie down. Right. So we were right in not letting him do the two shots that he didn't do. And again, they are like 16 frames. It's like, it's, it's over. Yeah. Like that. But in both cases, the stunt man, whose name is Casey, got <laughs> injured, you know. Yeah. And it was it was good that we didn't do it with Tom. But all the ones where he's swinging on the building and he's um, 10 miles high and all that stuff, that's all Tom. And that's the stuff that people believe we shot with, com- you know, computer graphics or something. And it's not. It's Tom. Yeah. 
that sh- that shot of him running now. So we did a count of all his running in each of the movies. Yeah. It's sort of not too scientific, but it's Ghost Protocol had by one second the most of Tom Cruise running. But now really? that that shot does not have him running. Oh, it no, you cannot not. say that. You will not do that to me. I demand that you cut this from the program now, then. I want the longest Tom Cruise cut. Okay, it was Tom. It was it Tom. Was Tom. He shot the footage with Tom. Yeah. It's amazing to see him running either away from or towards these like buggies that you rigged up. Yeah. Like him running like through the the hallways of the Kremlin or what I mean, it's just fascinating that he can run that fast. Well and then you put these buggies in front or behind the biggest star in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, which is a challenge. But the other thing that's funny is whenever you film a running scene with Tom, if he's chasing somebody you keep having to lengthen the distance that you start him from. Cause he says, I'm going to run full out. And you know, because people will be able to tell if I'm not, you're right. It'll look like I'm not running full out. So I've got to run full out because that's what the character would do. And so we'd put the other guy, you know, 15, 20 yards ahead of Tom or whatever. And he'd go, I don't think it's enough. And I said, well, it's okay. We'll just do one. And He'll catch him in like two seconds. And he's got him. And so then the next take will do 30 yards. And and he gets him. And then so you go, all right, 40 yards, you know. <laughs> and and we had to almost cut around the fact that he was catching up every time. Wow. But that's what makes it compelling on screen is he looks like he's running with every fiber of his being. And that is what he's doing. Yeah. And uh, what was funny was when we shot the uh, sequence in the train yard, Renner was pretty fast himself. I think he ran track in high school. And so Tom and Renner, it was in the middle of the night and cold and all this stuff. Um, and they were constantly doing these stretches and stuff. And it was just really funny to see these guys <laughs> doing all this stuff, you know, deep in the bends. And it was almost like they were in a track competition. Right? <laughs> but they had to, you know, catch up to this train and be able to press these buttons. And it was uh, it was a long night, but it, 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 the sequence turned out fun. Yeah. That feels like a very Bradford moment as well. Well, again, they're having, you know, to deal with the, you know, technology <laughs> yeah, yeah. when they don't really want to be <laughs> dealing with it. We'll be back with more from Brad Bird after the break. Can you tell us the thing that you couldn't get through? Uh, no, because I might be able to get it in another okay. movie. Okay, all right. It had to do with the character being drugged, though. Okay. Okay. And that's all I'll say. Okay. But it wasn't because they weren't willing to do it. It was because there was no way to get it to fit. Right. Okay. But I, I, all of the other things that I wanted to get in the movie, I got in the movie. And that's what that was... Part of the fun of doing that film was it was done with the attitude of like, you can make you can make the spy film you want to see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you uh, certainly made the spy film that we wanted to see. So thank you so much, Brad, for accepting this mission. And this was you didn't do a commentary. I think that now we have a a feature length commentary track for the movie (laughs) with this interview. So thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the only last thing I wanted to say was. It was a it was a challenge to do the IMAX, and um, we 
originally thought this is really ambitious to try to shoot it on the real building and we're probably going to have problems. So we should prepare to only have done two or three shots of the sequence on the actual building because we don't know how hard it's going to be to move this camera. And when we first talked to them about doing it, we said we're going to need to bash out one of these double windows that are very expensive to put in. And they kind of gritted their teeth and then went, okay, you can bash out one window. Then as we got there, we kept getting bigger eyes. And they would say, can we do three more windows? (laughs) And they'd go... All right, but you have to put them back exactly the way they were when you're done. And then we go, 10 more windows? <laughs> we ended up breaking like 37 windows, these giant double-pane yeah. windows, and just getting more and more shots. And we originally designed it so that that we thought the, the minimum we'll do is we'll do like four shots. Maybe we'll be lucky to get four shots. And we ended up getting everything. And, and we just kept bashing out windows and going to different floors and finding different angles. And, and, uh, we ended up shooting damn near the whole thing on the building. We didn't do some close ups where it's literally just his face in the sky. Cause there's no reason to do that on the real building, but all of the stuff that looks amazing is real. Yeah. And I, I couldn't believe I saw, I was watching some of the special features last night and there's the, the part where he falls yeah, like he like loses his his grip and falls. Was done on the building. I thought because I saw at one point some picture of of the set that you use probably just for those inserts or close ups. Yeah, and I assume that's where the fall I'd done with a green screen or something. That no. fall is really that fall is there, real. And, and he scary. drops like two stories and then gets jerked, you know. But everyone was extremely careful. He uh, when he does a stunt, he not only um, has a stunt team see what the problems are and explore everything and then get a full download on every aspect and physically too. Like they'll have a setup of what the building will be like that's just done above pads and say, when you get to this point, you're going to have to switch your weight to this side. I mean, they kind of suss it out for him. And then he practices it and he practices it and he right. practices it. So by the time he gets on the real building, he's pre- as well prepared as you can be before getting there. And, and then he rehearses on the building and, and perfects it on the building. He also trains so that the muscles he's going to need for in a, a specific stunt, he is peaking for that thing on the day that they are filming. Wow. So it is, it is as thorough or as like a person training for the Olympics. And he, Whatever the stunt requires of him, his team of guys will be preparing his body to do that thing on that day. And so, you know, when it comes time to do it, he's as professional as they come. And all the stuntmen say, you know, if this movie star thing doesn't work out for him, (laughs) he would be probably the best stuntman in the industry because he not only knows how to do it physically, but then he sells it emotionally by giving you the expression or something that, that emotionally sells it. So, uh, when, when they demonstrate a stunt for me, they'd have the stuntman do it and, it would look pretty good, but I'd be there going, yeah, but it's not. And the stunt lead would always go, it's going to look a lot better with Tom. (laughs) (laughs) Meaning that 
not only does he do the stunt, but he also sells the stunt. He he yeah. makes you feel like the character is in the, in the situation emotionally. Yeah, and and you know, like Greg uh, 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 Smurs was the was the stunt lead, and he had this very laconic way of kind of <laughs> talking about it, you know. And you go, well, you know. Are we kind of worried about? I'm sitting here, you know, having the star hanging on this little, very thin wire, uh, a mile up in the building, and he goes, "Oh, look, it's not like if you're if you're only three stories above the ground, you're gonna die. So <laughs> it's not you're gonna die anyway. So it's just you're gonna have more time to think about it on the way down, you know." And I'm like, "Wow, these guys have a certain ethos." <laughs> that, I can understand, but I cannot subscribe to it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it was a you know, it was a good gr- group of characters. And then we had another guy named uh, Wire Eater who was our consultant on uh, guns and stuff. And he was actually part of the L.A. SWAT team and got O.J. out of his car. And, and like, you remember that thing in, was it North Hollywood, where the guys came out in body armor and were like, that they that inspired the the, the climax heat. of heat. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He was involved in that too. So he was wow. a, a guy that was actually involved in this stuff. And now he consults on movies. You know, and they were very careful to make on the building. There was a yellow area. Blo- uh, yellow tape was on the ground, and if you crossed into that area, and it was before you got to the window, quite a bit before, you had to wear a harness that was connected to a wire, so that if you fell it would go and stop you from falling. So all the camera people and all the crew people that were inside this yellow area were hooked up. Right. So everyone was very serious about it, but we were there and uh, on the floor, Tom was getting the feel for the actual space. So he's on the Burj and we're kind of uh, on the inside of the glass um, just talking about, you know, how we're going to shoot it and stuff, but it's not the day of the shoot. It's days before and I'm sitting there. I know he's out there with the climbing consultant guy. And uh, we're just talking. And all of a sudden we hear, woo! And Tom goes by outside, <laughs> sw- swinging way wide by. And then he makes a rough landing into oh. one, of the, one of the sides of the building. And you hear, bam! And we're like, oh, my God! Star's dead, and then we hear Tom laughing, and and like, oh, you know, and it's like there was one point where we were in the middle of shooting this, and this is we're shooting it on IMAX, so it's physically the cameras are huge, and they're, and they're hard to you know maneuver and do these crane shots where you're going outside and all this stuff, and we also are shooting from a helicopter with IMAX. And so it all has to be orchestrated because there's only so much fuel that they can stay in the air for so long. And then they have to go back, fly back to a place to get fuel. And the IMAX loads are short because this giant film and it burns through it really fast because the frame size is so big. And so if once they've shot three minutes, they have to go all the way back to put in a new camera because there's no way to do it inside the chopper. So all of this stuff is tremendously complex and you've got walkie talkies and there's the stunt men are talking to the camera people who are talking to the helicopter people who are talking to that. And it all has to be orchestrated. In the meantime, Tom is holding himself on position, clinging to the side of the thing going, are we ready yet? <laughs> you know, and it's like crazy, right? 
So he's clinging to the side of the building and it's on the corner of the building and he's waiting to push off to this so that we can get one of the shots where he's floating out. And helicopters are, are readying and they're constantly moving off their mark because of the breeze. So you can't start rolling until they're kind of on their mark and into position. And Tom has to hold. And meanwhile, it's he's cranked around enough with the harness that he has built into him that it's cutting off the blood to his leg. So if he doesn't push off within, a, 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 you know, 10 or 15 seconds, he's not going to be able to push off hard enough to get out there and get the shot we need. Right. And so he's like, are we ready? And he's holding onto the corner of the building and down below him on the other side of the building is a deck with tourists who are looking up there and seeing Tom, you know, like 20 feet above them. And they're like, that's Tom Cruise. Hey, Tom, say hi to my Aunt Mary. You know, and they've got their little cell phone things shooting footage. And he's like, hey, are we ready yet? You know? <laughs> and uh, uh, so this kind of madness was going on. And we're in the middle of filming. And of course, it took many days to film this whole sequence because we have to move all this stuff. And it's tough stuff to work. And uh, at one point, it, it's in the middle of the night. And all of a sudden, I wake up in you know, like a cold sweat, like, ah! you know, because I realize the star of our film is like suspended by a tiny wire a mile above. And I'm le- allowing this to happen, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, what am I doing? This is insane. You know, and, I, and then I thought, well, if it's insane for me, it's three times more insane for Tom. So if he's OK with it. I guess I'm okay with it. <laughs> is, is it only one wire? Is there a backup wire? Or is there no, a- there's one wire. That's it? Just one it, wire? No, it's one wire. And it's not that wide. It's really strong. So, so there's Tom, no backup, basically. If anything fails with that one wire. Right. And you have to, and, and you, you know, have a the only digital effect <laughs> we did on those sequences is to digitally remove the one wire. Right. But in a lot of shots, you didn't see it because it's, thin enough. Right. You, know, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of nerve wracking, but you know, Tom was really cool with it. And, and finally at one point I'm like, what was it like out there? I said, you know, now that, that we're, it's, we're done with it, it's over. What was it like to be alone up there waiting for equipment and stuff? And you're just a mile up hanging off this thing. And he went, oh, it's fun. And I said, no, no, you got to give me more than that. You can't say that. I know that's the way you deal with interviewers. Like, and I said, but this is me now, right? What was it like? And he stopped for about 20 seconds. And he was really kind of trying to remember it. He said, it's very quiet. It's very peaceful. It's exciting, but it's also you feel sort of privileged that you are in a spot that not a lot of people will ever experience. And, and, uh, he said, for me, it was kind of, it was, it gave me peace. You know, it was, it was weird. It's like the word terror never entered into it. He was like, it's quiet. It's kind of beautiful. And, and it was, it was kind of interesting to hear that from him, you know, anyway, uh, uh, yeah, 
I love doing the opening sequence uh, to Dean Martin. I love cutting that with Paul Hirsch and getting it to work with the music the way it does. It almost feels like a musical sequence, even though we have burning yeah. mattresses being thrown by prisoners, <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, uh, I loved orchestrating all those shots. It, it was a, a really a blast for me to, to do it with um you know, real cameras and a, a DP is as is, uh, gifted as Robert Elswit. And so I got to work with people whose work I'd admire. And uh, uh, it was a blast. Yeah. Well, it was a blast talking to you. Thank you Great. so much for <laughs> accepting this mission. Brad, you bet. <laughs> that Light that Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, is produced by Charles Hood. That's me, and Drew Taylor. Our supervising producer is Abby Smith. This episode was edited by Luke Burson, with music by Kevin Blumenfeld. The interview is a production of Bravo Echo 11 LLC, and the podcast is a production of Paramount Pictures. All rights are reserved. This message will self-destruct in five seconds. CBS Friday, and streaming on Paramount+. Campfire's coming to you! TV's hottest show, Fire Country. This is a high-complexity rescue with a low chance of success. Follow the rules, and you shave another day off your sentence. Critics call it explosive and pure entertainment. I'm a fella. I'm not fit to be anything else. You're not an inmate. You're a firefighter. Bring it on. Fire Country. New episode Friday, 9, 8 central on CBS, and now streaming on Paramount+.